Hello, I'm Angelina. And I'm Martin. And this is the CX Cast. Hello, and welcome back, hopefully, back to the CX Cast. Now, this isn't going to play out straight after the new year, but this is our first recording in the new year. So, first off, welcome back, Angelina, from holiday. Happy New Year, Martin. Hope you had a good one. We're all trying to remember what our jobs are post-Christmas holidays, but we've got with us Martha Bennett, who is VP Principal Analyst based out of, I want to say Windsor in the UK. Is that close enough? Close. Eaton. Close. Eaton. <laughs> um, so closer, closer to me than she is to Angelina. And um, Martha's here to talk to us about generative AI. Now, we've talked about generative AI a few times on the podcast, but we're going to go click deeper today. We've talked about use cases for design, for CX. We're going to talk in the future about use cases for journey mapping, journey orchestration. But Martha's here to dig a little bit more into what is it, how does it work, and shed a bit of light on what's going on underneath the hood when you ask ChatGPT or your other favorite large language model a question. So where I want to start, Martha, is a bit of a, like a definitional thing about like what is generative AI? What makes it special? Well, first of all, thanks ever so much for inviting me. You're taking a risk here, inviting a geek onto um, a CX professional webcast. So I'll do my best not to disappear down into the weeds too much. In answer to your question, the reason why everybody is so excited about generative AI, and rightly so, is that we are looking at doing new things because at a high level, when you look at what AI has been doing for us very successfully for quite some time now, is essentially processing data and also where necessary coming up with predictions, automating certain things. What generative AI brings to it, and the difference actually lies in the word generative, it generates new content. And that's what makes it so interesting for so many different work and consumer contexts. I should also just say that we'll probably mostly be focusing on things to do with text in this podcast, but it is worth stressing that this is also about image creation, because in particular in a CX context, where, as I'm sure you've already heard, one of the real opportunities with generative AI is personalization, <laughs> then being able to generate new images and make them personal to the customer or prospect is obviously also a key element. And sorry about the digression here. No, that makes sense. So let, let's start with then with there's some definitions, words getting bandied around like large language model, LLM. What is one? What does it do? And when you type a question into it, what's actually happening? Right. The first thing to say is when you type a question, and let's just stick with ChatGPT because I think that's the one that everybody knows and that's the most widely accessible globally. A large language model. I'll come back to that, sits at the heart of it. What is not obvious to the person using it is that there is a whole host of other technologies in play that, for example, interpret what you've just said, try and maybe interpret the intent. And then there's all kinds of 
magic, let's call it, um, happening or techie stuff around vectorization, tokenization. We don't need to go into that. That's not important. What is important, that it's about more than just the large language model. And if we can park that and come back to that in more detail, because that's really important. Once all that input that you've given with your question is processed, that's when it goes into the large language model. And if I want to be really flippant about it, a large language model is actually statistics on steroids. I mean, it looks hugely impressive because the output is beautifully formulated. It provides some really, really elegant phrasing and so on. But what it's essentially doing, it's not literally answering your question. It strings together words based on the highest probability of what the next word is. And that's why those things are so huge and are trained essentially on the whole corpus of the, the internet and obviously with all the potential copyright and IP issues that may come into that. But the key point to remember, it's all probabilistic. And that's also why you may, when you input the same question, actually get different answers. So there's something critical in that, which I've seen misunderstood before. So this is really just to, be, so to kind of reiterate the point. This is really different from me saying, hey, Siri, what's on at the cinema tonight? Yes, it is different. Going forward, and in fact, this is where we probably touch upon in the more detailed discussion, is that if you just ask chat GPT, you're as likely as not to get back what's called plausible nonsense if you really ask it a question. It's different from when you just, for example, say, I've got an idea for a story here and feed in some rudiments of a story. Or you've already written something and you say, hey, can you turn this into business English for me? That's what it's good at. You can then take that and read it and maybe edit it. But don't go in and ask it for an answer. If you do that, you're as likely as not going to get different responses every time you ask the same question. And before you come to it, there are, you know, questions that should never be asked because, you know, they're, they're just inappropriate for all kinds of reasons. There is a lot of work going on in the background by the people who make these large language models to surround them with what's called guardrails to prevent some of that bad stuff from happening. But it's important to note that this is not an improvement in the model itself necessarily. This is all the things that go around the model to get the best out of it without exposing the downsides. And I've seen some of those guardrails, including Forrester's Gen AI model, Izola, will just say, I don't have enough information on that and not even try to answer. That's a good point. Yes, that is a, that is a guardrail in action where some other technology has interpreted the question coming in, knows that it's not appropriate for Izola in this instance. Let me just actually sidetrack into... The guardrails aren't necessarily always going to work, or they, they really need to be carefully constructed. There's a wonderful thing that happened um, before the holidays um, in the US where a car dealership used um, a Gen AI power chatbot to have conversations with potential car buyers and make them an offer for a car. Somebody who knows how that 
model works actually tricked it into making the customer an offer of a $2 car. I can totally see it too. You know, like, <laughs> give me an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I have another example. That's on, on image generation, where somebody tried to get it, get one of the tools to generate an image in the style of a living cartoonist whose work is obviously copyrighted. And the tool quite appropriately refused because that had been built in. So he allegedly, um, it was a he because I saw the tweet stream, then essentially tricked it into thinking, no, we're actually 125 years in the future. Copyrights expired. And he got his cartoon. So there are ways around even the guard rules. There are that that is the point, and this is the point I'm really wanting to make. This is all about software. This is about humans actually trying to control the software, dealing with potentially unintended um, consequences. And if I'm sounding a bit on the negative side here. I totally see the potential of the technology. I'm just not sure whether we've figured out quite yet how best to use it. Right. And all the positive stuff we're being inundated with anyway. So that's why I'm looking more at, hey, this is where the bear traps are. So one of the precautions we see firms taking is to have their own instance, maybe is the right word, of, of ChatGPT inside the corporate firewall, train it on corporate data, and then use it for internal purposes. So what's going on there? Let's pull the two apart. You would never ever train ChatGPT. It is possible to do a deal with OpenAI to do a custom version of GPT 3.5 or GPT 4, which are their two big large language models. Once you go there and customize the actual model, you own it. And you should only ever do that as an absolute last resort. And that's why I'm saying pull the two apart. It is worthwhile to have an internal instance of ChatGPT. What an internal instance of ChatGPT does is essentially give you a clone of the public ChatGPT. So it functions in exactly the same way as when if you went to that public interface. The difference is that you can use it with your company data, your IP, your customer data. It doesn't matter what you throw at the thing. If it's your internal instance, nobody else, no, not Microsoft, not OpenAI, no one has access to that data you use with it. That's why you have a private instance of ChatGPT. What you have also alluded to with your own data Firstly, yes, it is possible to train your own model. Some companies are doing that. Llama 2 from Meta is one of the most favored ways of doing that. It is quite an undertaking and it's not for everybody. The good news there is there are more and more services out there that make it easier for you to do that if you feel that training your own model is the best way. However, the real secret source is in your data. And that's what you just hinted at, Martin, because, and I'll use a technical term here simply because people might come across it, RAG, retrieval augmented generation. And what that essentially does, I'll try and do it conceptually. The question comes in, but instead of just going through the generic processes and then straight into the large language model for a response generation, what happens is that once the input has been interpreted, 
it goes off into your own systems and it retrieves relevant information from your systems about the customer, about the product, about whatever is relevant. It might even go outside and pull in a current exchange rate or whatever it might be. It's not limited to just internal data, but essentially what what happens in the middle there, that's why it's called retrieval augmented, is that you pull in data that are relevant to answering that question and that output and by the way those so-called rag stacks can get quite complex they may just be internal search or some analytics they might even include other ai models they might include um computer vision there's a whole richness of things that can happen to feed into that model the data that's needed to generate a response that actually contains pertinent data as opposed to just a beautiful narrative that may or may not be correct. And what you can then do as well, and that helps particularly um, when it's inside of the company, like with a customer service scenario, you can then provide that nice narrative answer that contains the wealth of output from a variety of internal systems, but it also points back to where that information comes from. So if you get that response and you're going, "Mm, I'm not sure this is quite right. Does our product manual really say that? You can click on the link and go back to the product manual and verify that it is indeed correct. So I'm kind of thinking of the use cases here would be like you mentioned, contact centers. So an intelligent agent that sits alongside the contact center agent, next prompting next best action or next best experience or describing a customer's history, paraphrasing customer's history, that kind of thing. And conceptually, you're talking about data sources sitting alongside the large language model not being ingested by it. Yes, exactly. Um, because also that way you can deal with data sources that change rapidly. Because what you need in a customer service interaction, in most cases, I suspect, is to ensure that the data is timely and up to date and accurate. And you can't keep retraining the model all the time. That's just wouldn't be a a satisfactory way of doing things. Whereas if you're just drawing upon the wealth of your own systems, and you probably realize there already where the challenge is, those who already have a good handle on what data they've got, they can get at it, they can run appropriate analytics, they can combine it in appropriate ways, they will have a head start on those that don't. So one of the promises then is actually democratizing data, right? Because if we're thinking about front lines, customer service, they're not able to constantly stay up to date themselves with the data. But if it's quarry based, they can get exactly what they need. That, that's exactly it. And people will say, well, what's the difference? They can already access. And the, the point is what the difference here really is. And, and the biggest difference at the start of it isn't actually the generative AI piece. The biggest difference is the natural language interaction. The fact that you don't need to know exactly where to look for a particular piece of information. The fact that you don't need to know the exact way in which you need to construct your query to get the required answer back, but that you can formulate it in a natural language fashion. And then what you get back, and in fact, I have seen deployments where what you get back actually consists of graphs and charts. 
That's obviously less in a contact center scenario, but it very much applies, for example, a potentially direct customer scenario where if you're showing the portfolio performance, then what you want is a chart and not necessarily um, something that's narrative. So you're kind of getting into where I was going to ask, which is about externally customer-facing applications of this. So internal is one thing because there's a obviously a human firewall between the data and the customer. What's the state of the art in terms of building customer-facing applications? Because that starts to feel risky to me. It, it does feel risky, as my car example, I think, already showed. That's just an amusing one where everybody just has a good laugh. Companies, in particular those in regulated industries like banks, for instance, are approaching this with the greatest of caution because, as I've already mentioned, it's one thing to provide inaccurate information like what I just mentioned. If, it, if you get presented with a product that doesn't exist, that's annoying. It may lose you some customer trust, but ultimately it doesn't do any harm. However, if the output, and it's typically a chatbot type scenario, if the output actually leads to harm, like the customer investing a product that's not in their best interest and losing money, or some guidance is given that makes somebody blow up their, their central heating or what, whatever it, it may be, then that can have consequences that could include lawsuits, regulatory compliance breaches, and at the risk of sounding very boring, where, again, this is probably more the case in financial services, but when you have situations where the output has to be what's called deterministic, meaning that if you ask the same question, you should get the same answer back, any scenario like that, you have to be very, very careful because with Gen AI, you can't guarantee you get the same answer back. You can modify that, as I've already mentioned, with those so-called rag-based stacks where you ensure that any actual data comes from your systems. But companies really aren't ready to take the risk on that. Those that already have well-received chatbots and have the infrastructure in place to draw from their own data sources, they're beginning to venture into using some of this in a customer-facing way, but with existing use cases, not venturing um, into new territory. So it's not just potentially garbage in, garbage out, like we've always said with data, but it's garbage in and variable garbage out. Um, yes. And, and in fact, that wonderful um, saying attributed to Einstein, what's it? Insanity is um, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting mm -hmm. a different result. Um, <laughs> Einstein had clearly not encountered generative AI. Right. So you, you started mentioning about trust as well. One of the things I've seen is... I can't work out how to describe this properly, so I'll give it a go. A user's trust in the fact they've asked the right question. So this gets into the whole thing about prompt engineering and how are you phrasing the question? Because I've seen instances where people have asked it a question, it's given an answer and they've gone, oh, brilliant. And then you look at the question and actually you've asked something different, but you think you've asked a different question and you've got the answer to a different question and they get trapped in this mode of, well, I trust the answer. A, you probably shouldn't trust the answer because it's not an actual answer. It's a probabilistic answer. And B, you didn't even ask the right question in the first place. It's answered something different. So like, how do we train people to use them better? Well, th this is indeed actually the biggest challenge. And I know there are people who say that nobody should use generative AI who isn't an expert in the topic for which they're looking at the output. 
but that's clearly not how it's used. The reason I'm actually concerned about this in that I have seen some examples involving, I think it was medical advice, and the other one was to do with developers. So in the second example, we're actually talking with techies. And in the medical thing, they looked at doctors' answers and generative AI answers to people's health questions. And in the developer example, it was about answers to technical questions. In both cases, the chat GPT answers were preferred, even when they were wrong. And you could forgive that in the health scenario, because as I already said earlier, obvious nonsense is better than plausible nonsense, because if it sounds right, then how would I know that it's not right? But in the developer examples, when they um, did that experiment, the developers actually preferred the chat GPT answer, even if they knew it was wrong, because chat GPT is more polite. So that's an example where are you talking about writing code? Well, I don't know whether it, that experiment was about writing code or just a technical question that was right, answered okay. by somebody and they compared but it, but it with an instance one of where, those. It's an instance where there is an actual correct answer. There, there is a correct answer. Yeah. You ask a technical question, how do I do X? And yeah. you go to you know places like Stack Overflow or whatever where other developers give you their answer to how they think you can solve your problem. And just like with doctors, the experts on those sites, they can be quite curt. They're under time pressure. They know exactly what they wish to convey and push it out there. And so in non-answer to your question, Martin, this is going to be a challenge because what we're seeing from those very early rough and ready comparisons is that people do like it when someone's being polite and they're more receptive to that kind of tone. Well, and I think RCX index backs that up, the easy effect of an emotional, and emotional is the thing that matters. So you can you can create positive and negative emotions by being rude or polite. And I, I have noticed ChatGPT chat is very polite and very enthusiastic about everything I ask it. It's also very verbose. And that's another thing to think about. I've experimented with other um, chatbots based on large language models. And I know that some of them where ChatGPT will give you three paragraphs when you ask it to summarize something or whatever. Claude 2, for instance, that gives you one paragraph and no content is lost or no, there's nothing lost. Um, Jack GPT just has a, a habit of repeating itself. I've just had another thought because I recently had a conversation at an event with a consultant who said that chat interfaces will replace everything. That's how people will interact. And I challenged him on that and I said, is it always the most appropriate to try and deal with things verbally. And I used the example of, you know, let's say you're buying a car. You may start with uh, verbalizing your requirements. I would like that type of a car and I, I would like it to be blue, you know, whatever your requirements are of a new car. And then you might get some suggestions back. At some point, wouldn't it be easier if you could just use a visual product configurator to come up with your ideal vehicle? rather than getting verbal responses and responding with a narrative? You tell me. Yeah, describe, describe which shade of blue. For the audience at home, we're recording this on video, and both myself and Angelina frowned a lot while that question was being answered. So this has been exactly what we wanted to talk about, which is like demystifying and getting underneath the hood of 
kind of what's going on in some of these models. So anything else, talking to our audience and say professional, anything else you want to leave them with in terms of advice or like key risks, key opportunities? And I think the risks that we've talked about in that really great caution is advised. What I'd like to leave people with really is that it's all about your data. That is the foundation, whether it's an internal use case to give extra powers to your contact center experts, or whether at some point you might want to take it externally. If you want to personalize, if you want to provide optimal service, you really, really need to understand the customer, have your data in good shape, have access to that data, obviously understand how you can use that data and how best to surface it. But also really, really open up your thinking about what you could do in an ideal world if you could make something really personalized, like can you learn enough about a customer to adapt the language of an email to that customer to what that customer might prefer in the way that it's been done by some banks for decades in the call center, where there's actually a marker against the customer. This person's chatty. This person's purely transactional. You know, don't try and talk about the weather. Um, that can be taken to the power of N, provided you have that data background. And also always bearing in mind that just because something is right 999 times out of a thousand, does it matter if it goes wrong once? Because for some companies, a 97% accuracy level is fine and the rest they can deal with in some way or other. Think about how that plays out for your use cases, your environment, your scenarios. So don't put it in charge of your nuclear power stations just yet. So thank you, Martha. Thank you, Angelina, my co-host as ever. Thanks, Martha. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forrester.com. As always, you can find us at forrester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights.